we suddenly start to get a better idea of well, what happens if the cortisol response is lacking in any way. In that instance, we cannot switch off the stress response so effectively. And so just on a hormonal basis, we're often locked into this ongoing sympathetic activation. Welcome to the Seamland podcast. My name is Seamland and our guest today is Marek Doyle. Marek is a nutritional therapist from the UK. He has 13 years of experience with thousands of patients and uses personalized nutrition. This episode is brought to you by BioOptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. Almost every person is deficient in magnesium because it's being depleted by stress. And on top of that, our foods are also much lower in magnesium because of soil depletion. BioOptimizer's has an amazing full-spectrum magnesium supplement called Magnesium Breakthrough. It includes seven of the most important magnesium types. Check out Magnesium Breakthrough at magbreakthrough.com forward slash seam and use the code seam10 for a 10% discount. Marek, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we've uh, spoken together at many events and uh, your information is really good. So um, I feel like it definitely cuts through uh, this dogmatic medical standard of care and like focuses on identifying like the individual's own needs. So it's um, very um, contradicting to the uh, mainstream medicine. Don't I know it? Yeah. So uh, how did you become a nutritional therapist? So back in 2005, that's when I, well, uh, 2005 is when I began working as a nutritional therapist. And it simply came about mainly because I'd worked in the real world very briefly, hadn't necessarily enjoyed it that much. (laughs) And so I decided I wanted to do something that I had some sort of passion in and the application of science that was actually useful that was always what got me and so obviously what could be more useful than tending to the metabolism what could be more useful than than doing that in a way that changed people's day-to-day lives so that's what brought me in And then uh, the problems that I came across sculpted everything that happened thereafter. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it's, I would imagine that uh, it's uh, like taking the high road because uh, personal nutrition is, uh, is definitely much more difficult and nuanced than, um, than mainstream medicine. Like you need more time, you need more resources. uh, You have to actually like develop a relationship with the person that you're working with. And uh, there is no, a cheap quick solution like takes his pill and everything's going to be fixed no it's so true and there's huge rewards but as you say there are difficulties and part of that is is the communicating of my message uh it's not an easy message to sell when there are countless ideas which are generally good ideas but they ultimately are sold in a way that says this particular pill will solve the following problems, fatigue, sleep issues, performance, brain function. And you think, well, hang on, that sounds amazing. Oh, those Mm -hmm. mechanisms make sense. Oh, those signs and symptoms tie in with me. Cool. You sign up, you take the pill. I mean, it doesn't work, but of course,
course, it will capture our imagination. Meanwhile, I'm well aware that from the get-go, I'm saying, well, let's actually take a look under the hood. Let's invest your emotional resources in finding out what, what the issue is. Investigations don't have the same payoff as the outcome, um, but unfortunately are a necessary component of getting that outcome reliably mm. rather than simply rolling the dice and hoping we're now undertaking a comprehensive systematic mathematically driven investigation into well what is stopping this individual from getting the results they need and so yeah that is it has been a challenge for me to actually engage with people because the human brain isn't designed to get excited about these slow drawn-out processes we get excited about the dessert not eating our vegetables beforehand <laughs> and then equally on top of that there is a cost in terms of testing there's a cost in terms of time invested in gathering the data when they ask people for heart rate variability blood pressure resting heart rate temperatures all basic stuff but yeah, it does require commitment in that sense for them to, to to deliver what we need to make things clear. And so, yeah, as you say, it is, it requires a lot more investment into it, even though I think the concepts are something that most people can get on board with very easily. Mm, yeah, definitely. Uh, like, uh I'm curious to know, like over the course of your 13 years of experience, um, like what are the biggest problems people deal with and uh, have those problems changed with time or are they more like the same? Same Are, are people as sick as they were, uh, you know, a decade ago? Yeah, and that's actually quite interesting. I think it could be difficult for me to to fairly assess how are we as a society? How sick are we as a society now versus then? Mainly because the, the section uh, of, of people that I'm working with, this self-selected population of people that come and see me has always been uh, separated from society at large, primarily because I haven't ever tended to be people's first option. Mm -hmm. uh, a uh, audit back in 2014. And at that time, the individuals coming to see me on average had seen seven and a half practitioners before me. So automatically, this is a population that are not getting the results that they're expecting, uh, that are struggling to respond the way that they wanted to that the practitioners thought they would so yeah i have obviously benefited from a, a different perspective in that sense seeing the outliers seeing those people who who yeah are, are really uh struggling with their highest number of obstacles uh, but equally benefited um from from being Benefited and suffered from being forced to continually crunch the numbers, assess who's responding, who's not responding, when are they, when are they not, what's the correlation between various test markers, what responses 
Um, and that obviously yields these gleaming red flags and those connections then turn to mechanisms. Those mechanisms then turn to the ability to substratify. Um, but yes, in terms of you know, what are the problems that individuals are dealing with then versus now and how have they changed? I think that as... I was initially forced to look at the role of, say, the adrenals uh, due to my own problems back in 2007. Uh, and then from, I would say, 2012 onwards, when I was slapped in the face with a second bout of issues and forced to hold the, hold, hold the knowledge that I had accumulated from my own uh, solutions uh, from years beforehand and the the continual um, sculpting of how did that apply to the population at large how did that apply to all the people that I was working with um, well yeah then of course came the need to look further into it with that came improved results with that came a whole host of referrals with that came new populations so so in that sense yeah the complexity of the individuals that I work with has changed in that time and the number of showstopper obstacles those obstacles that mean that they cannot uh, have a fair chance of responding to the the usual things well that's changed but I think the, the, the takeaway, all of the individuals that I tend to work with, uh, or should I say at least the chronic individuals that I tend to work with, none of them have had a fair chance of responding to interventions. Uh, in other words, they have all trialed multiple protocols. They've all taken various supplements, undertaken various lifestyle changes, revolutionize their dietary intake but they've never had a fair chance to respond to any of these things and so that's the one problem that binds them all that something within their metabolic function has stopped them from having a fair chance and it's been my job to identify well what is the obstacle in their case and what do we need to do about it Mm, so you're, it's more like just identifying yeah, what is, uh, what has led the person to get stuck or um, what is the mm. biggest obstacle? Exactly that. And of course, it, for an example, it is, it's absurd for us to expect anybody with compromised mitochondrial performance to respond to anything that involves the brain. Because, well, the brain is the single most energy-intensive organ system of, of the body. We're constantly uh, told how the brain is only 2% of the weight of the body, but uses 20% of the energy, which is true. Although, even then, it's actually much more useful to consider, well, the neurons within the brain they actually only account for 10% for of the brain's weight. In other words, 0.2% of 
of our, our total body weight. And yet those neurons use up seven times more, 70% of, of the brain's energy. In other words, these neurons use 65 times more energy than the average cell in the body. So suddenly we can see why somebody may well be looking at you know, brain enhancing supplement and it does nothing. Well, if I've got their organic acids test in front of me, which demonstrates that they have catastrophic blockages in their mitochondrial function, well, of course it's not going to work. I mean, any intervention for the vagus nerve, there's just masses of connections between brain energy metabolism, uh, specifically the use of acetyl-CoA, which we obviously always talk about in regards to mitochondrial fueling. But going back to the 80s, there's papers that very clearly identify you cannot maintain adequate choline levels if there's any inhibition of that use of acetyl-CoA, which is pretty much guaranteed with any mitochondrial issue. In other words, from this one connection between the mitochondrial pathways and choline production, of course, acknowledging that choline is what allows the vagus nerve to use. How can any of these interventions for uh, vagus nerve activity, whether that be cold exposure or anything else, how could they possibly have a chance of working when you are destined to fail just from this one crucial but basic obstacle that hasn't been tended to? Mm. Yeah, it's so true in a way that your body needs uh, or your body functions in a certain way. And uh, if uh, it doesn't have like the resources to conduct these processes, like anything related to weight loss or uh, cognition or just energy production, then yeah, like it's the things that you try to do, all the biohacks, all the, the fancy supplements and uh, different diets, they're not going to work because the foundation isn't there. And, uh, you know, you're just... You're just, uh, you know, running in circles in a way. Yeah, and, and I think that it is really difficult for individuals who are running in those circles to, to stick with it. It's only natural that we're going to become a little bit unmotivated because it's so often the case that we're jumping from expert to expert from protocol to protocol we're looking for that thing that's going to help and it's so normal for people to think right no i'm i'm, I'm really going to commit to this i'm, I'm really going to make this work uh, and and of course it was mm -hmm. never an option um and then of course we think well that intervention's a load of rubbish that doesn't work and the whole basis of personalized medicine is not does it work or not? Is it good or not? It's when is it likely to work? Uh, mm -hmm. Who and what are the circumstances in which this is likely to work? Yeah. Uh, how did you fix your own issues? You mentioned that you had some problems. Yeah. So, I guess we'll, we'll cut to 2007. I've been a nutritionist for about two years and uh, I'm extremely satisfied, but 
potentially more satisfied than I should be with how things are going because I'm working primarily with athletes and uh, some members of the public also. And I'm generally seeing great results in fat loss, which is what I was starting to accumulate a little bit of a reputation for. And it's fair to say it wasn't happening in everyone, but in those it was happening in, well, it was very, very pleasing to see. Um, anyhow, I'm training very hard for um, Muay Thai uh, kickboxing competition. So I'm, I'm going into my second bout and I'm training late. I'm getting home late. I'm actually doing early uh, morning sessions. I'm not quite getting as much sleep as I could. I'm also undertaking the stress of setting up this business and typically indulging in some of the things that I recommend other people don't do. And yeah, I got an injury one night in sparring and it was relatively trivial, but yeah, that was a straw that broke the camel's back. And at that point I wake up and I'm just so weak and this clearly isn't right. And I did all the usual things, went to the doctor and said, look, can I do these tests? But instead got shooed out of the office being told how healthy I am or at least how healthy I look. And so that was the first time I was uh, forced to start looking deeper and went down various blind alleyways in line with, ah, this list of signs and symptoms ties in. This is clearly the explanation. But no, it wasn't. That process was repeated a few times, but after getting uh, this, this resonance with the idea of the adrenals and what they do, and then running the adrenal stress profile test to start mapping out, I suddenly was confronted with a big smoking gun. I attended to that, and wow, what a difference. I then felt better almost overnight. And so, Obviously, this served as proof of concept um, in regards to how powerful adrenal support could be and, and, and how breaking certain cycles that play out with impaired adrenal performance can impact on how we feel. And it also allowed me to start spotting these similar signs and symptoms in others. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the individuals that weren't responding began to respond, or at least a decent proportion of them did, which again started to demonstrate, well, there's certain people that need more mm -hmm. to get the same results in others. And yet that adrenal support wasn't enough for everyone. And that's where I really started to, to, to look deeper uh, into what's going on beneath the surface. And uh, yeah, then of course there was a slap in the face for me in 2012. I had two hits on my spine in the same week whilst living in a moldy flat. And it's fair to say that that wasn't good for me. And uh, again, it was a, a, a real raw uh, moment of, of realizing that the ideas I thought were sufficient were categorically not. They were not 
uh, are developed enough to integrate all of those issues that I was now facing. So yeah, fast forward to eight years later, and it's been quite a long journey to unpack that and uh, audit everything. That that's been the the primary theme since that that second uh, mm. challenge for me is that well, it's not enough to see. Um, a decent response in a decent number of people. I need to know why these individuals are working. I need to be able to predict who's going to respond to intervention A uh, now, who's going to need uh, changes in order to respond and who simply isn't going to respond. So yeah, that's been the very, uh, the very nature of things and my primary focus in that time. Hmm. Did what, what did you um, like? What what in, interventions did you do to yourself? Like, did you change your diet, or uh, how did you support the adrenals? Okay, so um, it was actually quite simple. Uh, my cortisol production back in two thousand seven was thoroughly uh, insufficient, especially given the higher levels of stress I was under at the time. So. Uh, that stage I brought in some licorice roots I brought in some magnesium and those two interventions in themselves had a quite spectacular impact um, and yeah from, from that point uh, things were good uh, at a later date when I in 2012 ran another adrenal stress index test and it was fascinating then to uh, apply the same intervention didn't work so here I am same person different situation and a need to look a little bit deeper and in that instance uh yeah i was uh, forced into learning the connection between mold and the way that it can deplete vitamin b1 and yeah it, it ultimately led me to uh, looking into multiple testing including that that result for particularly low b1 levels which wasn't all down to uh, mold there's there's clearly uh, some regulation issues and that forced me to focus more on the role of the hypoxia response the way the body manages oxygen and of course in hindsight it is um, almost something that makes me shake my head with uh, yeah how this obvious role of well, what does mold do to the body and, and, and we now see so clearly how it disrupts oxygen delivery through mm -hmm. inflammatory processes but hey that's not a problem provided the body's hypoxia response compensates for that produces the changes in the capillaries via the production of VEGF vascular endothelial growth factor and thus it means most people will be able to take that insult to take that challenge they've compensated with um the the increased capillary production and all is good they maintain normal function i didn't compensate now how much of that was to do with the hits on my spine which altered blood flow to the brain and therefore meant that there was double the insult and very uh, little opportunity to respond to that and equally yeah the the role of uh, the, the hypoxia response and, and what uh, permits that and suddenly that forced me to look into uh, iron 
and copper iron proteins being those that move oxygen around the body copper uh, being the uh, basis of copper proteins that use oxygen in the body especially in the mitochondria so yeah this was a situation that i always struggled to break down into what did i do um, because what I did was uh, quite a sustained and drawn out investigation into the various connections between um, the the nutrient status, the regulation of those nutrients, and the need of those very same nutrients to regulate the entire process. So yes, dealing with postural issues, I'm doing three decades worth of um, martial arts, football collisions, real life damage to the spine. You know, I actually grew two centimeters in height. Not that mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, there's a chiropractor in uh, London who's got the uh, measurements before and after 48 adjustments. And so, uh, yeah, the, the postural stuff was big. The uh, regulation of my oxygen usage, which was, yeah, a deep dive into the interactions of iron, copper, and mitochondrial function, as well as many other stops in between there. Mm. Um, yeah, that, that was really big. Um, so I wish I could boil that down into an easy takeaway. But yeah, it, it forced me to undertake uh, that deep dive into how is my body using its energy, its oxygen. Mm-hmm which often boils down to the same thing. Um, and what obstacles were stopping me from, from doing so? Yeah, so you were uh, kind of suffering from low cortisol, which is uh, like, um, a lot, like a lot of people would think that uh, if they suffer from chronic fatigue and those things, then they're too stressed out and their body is like under high amounts of stress. But uh, as in your case, usually, or in some cases, it can also be just uh, the lack of these stress hormones because you need cortisol to like feel awake and uh, have have alertness so uh, if, if you're deficient in cortisol if you're like the circadian rhythms and the cortisol are out of whack you're producing cortisol at the wrong time then that can also result in the same um, feeling of uh, you know tiredness and i think the cortisol is such a misunderstood hormone because we're often uh told that cortisol is the stress hormone and that's so misleading because in the actual acute stress response that equips us to handle threats to our life mm-hmm. is dominated more by adrenaline and the activity of sympathetic nerves the focus being to get energy from storage into circulation so that it can be used so that it's available to handle the tiger that's about yeah. to bear down upon you or the chainsaw wielding mania <laughs> yeah. we're familiar with what's required in this stress response but it's interesting that cortisol doesn't make an appearance till a little time after the acute stress and it's there to help us handle that stress it's there to help us move into the adaption phase mm-hmm. and to compensate for the demand that stress placed upon our 
physiology. So in regards to its uh, impacts on the actual stress response, whereas adrenaline empties the storage sites of energy, cortisol is there to help us replenish those mm -hmm. storage sites. Whereas uh, adrenaline and the whole sympathetic response is there to get us vigilant and switch on all our stress-related physiology, cortisol actually helps us switch off the physiology. Now, we generally know this after just a few minutes reading physiology textbooks when we look at the role of cortisol in switching off mm. the hypothalamic activity. So there's a very uh, strong role for cortisol there in communicating back to the brain that the body has adapted, that we are now on the other side, and it can start moving on. It can start uh, finishing the adaption. And so we suddenly start to get a better idea of well, what happens if the cortisol response is lacking in any way. In that instance, we cannot switch off the stress response so effectively. And so just on a hormonal basis, we're often locked into this ongoing sympathetic activation, which, sure, the advantage is that we can often feel nice and alert and that we're, we're, we're buzzed with <laughs> this sympathetic activity. But at the same time, the costs of that stress response they are going to have to be repaid. And just as one example, we're always, uh, we're always liable to focus on the way that that acute stress response empties energy from storage. And we focus on the way that the muscles hold glycogen, the liver holds glycogen, the fat stores hold fatty acids, and they are dumped into the bloodstream. And yes, that's exactly what happens. But there's also this hugely important part of the stress response that opens up the gut lining in order to get access to the sugars and salts from the intestines. Mm. Now, we often talk about leaky gut. And in most cases, we're talking about the separation of the cells lining the intestines which occurs as a result of inflammation or alcohol or gluten or oxidative stress etc and that's where we're seeing this uh paracellular permeability uh the the contents of the gut are getting into the bloodstream between the cells however when it comes to the stress response we're actually seeing the cells themselves deliberately open up channels this is transcellular permeability they're opening up these channels to deliberately move contents of the gut into the bloodstream and yes it's a very successful way of moving in sugars and salts indeed a lot of the new generation of diabetes drugs are working specifically on these channels to inhibit the movement of these sugars but the key thing here is that you're not just getting the sugars and salts. The cost of eliciting this stress response all the time is that you're now getting little fragments of bacteria. 
we call them endotoxins or like polysaccharides and so these are fragments of uh, dead bacteria they can't infect you but your immune system doesn't know that all it sees is evidence of bacterial invasion non-mammalian dna is suddenly in the bloodstream and of course it elicits a major emergency immune response added to the fact the stress response immediately primes your uh, innate immune response you've got these sentinel cells macrophages mast cells and, and they are directly uh, primed by an ongoing stress response which has a fantastic adaptive uh, a benefit in its natural environment throughout evolution but now what we've got is immune cells that are spiked into being overactive and then masses of exposure to what your immune system has over the course of evolution learnt is a risk of death and this is why even in a healthy stress response you've had a, a tough day at work you are likely to come home a little frazzled a little sensitive to noise a little adverse to human contact you just need a moment now that's a healthy stress response imagine if that's going on all the time to masses of amounts because you can't switch it off mm. and that's where the ability of the adrenal cortex to produce cortisol becomes such a key switch in whether we can handle stress, recover and move on, or whether just normal day-to-day -day stresses become overwhelming and lead on to this myriad of inflammatory insults which then go on to start disturbing function disturbing function to such a point that it can affect the ability of the mitochondria to produce energy. Mm -hmm. It can affect the ability of the hypothalamus to recognize energy signals. And suddenly the central nervous system is no longer able to communicate with itself effectively it no longer has the neuronal energy to coordinate these complex uh, messages what's the consequence here your brain your limbic system which involves the hypothalamus that i've been speaking of suddenly becomes overactive to all minor stresses and now you've got this perfect self-perpetuating cycle of overactive stress response underactive coping uh underactive switching off of that stress response and it just plays out from there hmm. so there's multiple steps in that process but one of the most effective and reliable ways to start switching that off one of the most key moments in when normal day-to-day -day stress becomes a chronic metabolic problem is the response of the adrenal cortex cells and their ability to produce cortisol. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's a really great overview about it, and uh, yeah, it's so true in a way that uh, even like small amounts of stress can be very disturbing for some people if they lack the coping ability or coping mechanisms, 
Uh, whereas, you know, someone who has sufficient amounts of these resources, they can handle a lot more. And it's very like subjective between people. So it's, it's not uh, that it's not that all stress is the same. It's very context dependent and it's based upon the individual and uh, their own situation. Oh, absolutely. And this is where it's so relevant that a lot of people think, yeah, but my life isn't stressful. And, and that is an interesting summary because in these contexts, it's not necessarily how objectively stressful your life is. It's more a case of how many votes for the uh, stress response, the, the emergency response, is your limbic system, is your hypothalamus receiving. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be very different for each individual, even in the same uh, frontline situations. I mean, how many, uh, uh, how many individuals here have dysregulated inflammation affecting parts of the brain called the anterior insula and promoting this worst case scenario thinking? Very adaptive throughout evolution not so adaptive now. Mm-hmm. How many individuals have the magnesium or the oxygen delivery, the, the mitochondrial energy supply to their brain cells so that they can conduct sensory gating? This is the uh, a description of the process where our brain cells each have the ability to blank out irrelevant stimuli. Mm-hmm. And it's vitally important because current estimates indicate that at any moment in time, our brain is receiving one billion bits of information. And most of that is irrelevant to our survival at this moment in time. And so we have these NMDA receptors uh, at every single neuron. And the role of that is to ensure that irrelevant messages don't get passed on. Well, inflammation can uh, massively spike the levels of glutamate uh, in the brain. This is an excitatory neurotransmitter, which is heavily involved in a whole load of healthy purposes, switching on neuronal networks to help us learn, to help us solve problems, to finish our sentences for bigger picture thinking. But when it's in excess, it continually uh, invokes voting at these receptors to pass on the message to elicit further activity, which can not only challenge the uh, energy supplies of the neuron if it's sustained for too long, but also can result in there being a huge amount of irrelevant stimuli arriving at control centers, meaning that the brain is receiving thousands of votes for that danger response, even when it's in a uh, subjectively safe environment. Mm-hmm. So in that instance, yeah, the exact same situation, the exact same challenges on the individual may well play out entirely differently depending on the physiological regulation of those signals coming in. And yes, neurotransmitter balance, 
energy availability for those receptors, inflammatory changes to both of those things, well, suddenly we can start seeing why we respond differently to others. We can also see why, why are we struggling with the same task now than two months ago? Mm-hmm. We find it easy. So there's a lot of considerations there. And so understanding that it isn't a case that the same stimulus will induce the same output in all people is the start of sensible assessment. That's the start of personalized nutrition. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I wanted to touch upon like, so there's two parts of the stress response or the reactions of stress so there's the adrenal component which is determining uh, how you're going to deal with the stress uh, but the way you kind of perceive the stress initially starts from the brain and the limbic system which is the emotional center and especially like also the amygdala where where the kind of primitive brain is located and it's uh, detecting the stimulus that you receive from the environment and therefore sends out signals throughout the uh, rest of the brain and where all the other signals go to the rest of the body to you know conduct certain processes and start reacting to the stress so it's all, almost a matter of like perception as well of how well you perceive the stimulus your final question there the uh, audio dropped out sorry the audio just dropped out um, okay. i think your your microphone just went a bit quiet okay well yeah like i was explaining that uh the you know some people are just more hypersensitive in the limbic system and that's that is going to also dictate their initial response to distress mm-hmm. yeah exactly and so it is fascinating because one of the questions that i get asked most often and possibly the most difficult question to answer at least to answer in less than three hours is why am I stressed? And it often occurs after we've been checking heart rate variability and the individual is failing to see the improvements that they should see from common stress reduction techniques. And as you say, this is hugely centered on the role of the limbic system, a key part of which is the amygdala, that that emotional uh, center which is designed not only to provide salience, uh, importance to uh, the input coming in, but also to initiate this physiology, uh, the, the, uh, the use of the various apparatus that we have to handle these challenges. And so in this sense, we know that when somebody is overly stressed, or over-responsive to stress, it has to involve the limbic system. Mm -hmm. It has to involve the amygdala. And so the secondary question is, well, what is resulting in this over-response to the amygdala? And, And this, of course, is a perfect example of needing to individualize our response because it may simply be that low energy state that I mentioned leaves the individual subject to excess votes coming in because those gating systems aren't doing their job. That's those NMDA receptors, in which case 
we need to go looking for what affects them. Oxygen availability, yeah. mitochondrial function, magnesium status. Equally, what if it's to do with insufficient down-regulation of the limbic system by the prefrontal cortex? Now, the prefrontal cortex is the area of the brain. It's at the front of the brain, and it's the area that is most associated with higher cognitive thought. It's where we solve things. We can help make sense of things. We can generate that video of uh, the situation. Now, we know that that's a hugely energy-intensive area and very highly correlated with thyroid inputs. So if that's the case and the individual has uh, brain fog and this overactive uh, uh, amygdala and limbic response, then yeah, then maybe we need to look down that route and suddenly, yeah, we're looking at how is the thyroid performing? And spoiler alert, it's almost always fine. And then we're looking at how are the thyroid enzymes working? This is where the body regulates energy metabolism very extensively. Spoiler alert, this is almost always where we find those issues. So looking at the movement of T4, T3, plus the reverse T3 and T2 network that no one ever talks about, hugely important, not only in what outcomes we're going to get from this pathway, but also in what the body's trying to achieve. So yeah, so we may well be looking at this thyroid mitochondrial interaction at the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala. We may well be looking at a lack of vagus nerve activity and suddenly we're looking again at what would stimulate the vagus nerve and whether that's social surroundings, whether that's cold exposure, can the vagus nerve fire, choline status, and then we're also looking at that interplay between choline metabolism, mitochondrial function that I mentioned earlier. Does the vagus nerve have a fair chance? And I'm going to stop there. There's more stuff we can talk about, including <laughs> neurotransmitters, serotonin, GABA, and all of that. But I hope that gives us a good idea of why there's multiple ways that yeah. uh, we can see an inability to regulate an adaptive response at yeah. the limbic system. And as much as that concept can be simple to take on board. I appreciate that that often leaves people with that same question of, well, that's just great, but what do I do about it? Mm -hmm. And of course, that's where um, it can get more complicated unless we undertake a systematic approach to A, identifying the obvious obstacles, and B, to then removing them and yeah. then using people's responses to guide what happens next yeah totally uh so maybe let's take some uh, more specific examples for example uh, like nutrition so uh what kind of key uh or like what are the biggest suspects that you look at when it comes to nutrition and uh, if you're trying to fix uh, the stress response okay well um how i would do it 
is always to start with the organic acids tests. Uh, that's a urinary test that measures 75 different markers from various different parts of the body. So certain markers relate to neurotransmitter transmission, others tell us about what's going on in the gut and whether there's excessive yeast or bacterial activity there. And others look at nutrient status, others may well look at our responses to key food chemicals, our glutathione status, but in all, uh, cases the the single most important uh, markers not that i wish to put a hierarchy on it but where i would always uh, be able to start uh, predicting people's responses and engineering um, personalized programs is the mitochondrial markers mm. probably gather that a little theme that with every area that relates to the limbic system with, with every um, with, with every process that's going on in the body there's always an energy thing um, and this is the very basis of the body's ability to adapt to certain situations its ability to perform tasks or not does it have the energy availability has the stress response diverted that to certain apparatus? Or has the inflammatory response hijacked it to conduct its own aims? Um, but yeah, so let's, let's use the organic acids test. Let's look at the mitochondrial markers. And this is something that's going to give me uh, a very clear picture on whether the mitochondria are stalled, whether they're limited, or whether they themselves are ready to go and it's more of a regulatory issue. Take that information, then look at any nutrient shortages, then look at any issues, um, lifestyle, digestion, sleep. What we end up with from looking at the organic acid test, the case history, the, the, the various screening process, it's very clear, not only how this individual is limited, but also what obstacles mean they don't have a fair chance. So that's when I would tend to the shortages. And in some people, maybe they're acutely short of carnitine, which means they can't efficiently move fats into the mitochondria. Maybe they're short of B2, which is going to have catastrophic impacts on their the furnace of their mitochondria, that electron transport chain that we love talking about. Um, or, of course, maybe they have low levels of B1. Maybe they don't have copper availability the way they should, which might be because they're just not eating liver. Or it might be because they don't have the capacity to move it right now. In any case, what I'm doing is I'll take a look at that, take a look at the obvious sleep, digestion, lifestyle issues. We provide the obvious solutions. And for some people, that's enough. Now, in the population that I tend to work with, it's not normally enough. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it doesn't do much. Most of the time, though, we're going to see that that sees people take a big stride forward, generally. And then by using the metrics, 
using testing of very key pathways, we can actually build a picture of not only how far did the obvious, the obvious support move them, but we can also determine in what ways did it move them and which uh, entry points to that limbic system are we seeing improve, which remain resistant. And that gives us an idea now of how many non-obvious obstacles are going to stand between them and the finish line and where we're going to find them. And often that will call for a, a secondary round of testing. And that's where things do get much more personalized at that stage because now their response to removing the obstacles means that we, for the first time, are starting to see what's truly stopping them. We're, in other words, we're getting to measure the individual and where the individual is at rather than where they're at when subject to mold toxicity and uh, six hours of poor sleep each night, a total lack of key mitochondrial nutrients that mean there's no possible way we could ever see what their metabolism is actually capable of. Hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's a really precise way of going about it. And uh, uh, But uh, are there any, let's say, specific nutrients that you would avoid or the f like no no foods that you should eat if you have uh, generally these kind of symptoms? Well, yeah. So unfortunately, as much as I would love to say, right, here's, here's three takeaways. Nutrients that people with chronic complex issues tend to do uh, badly with, often adaptogenic herbs will be an issue. And uh, yeah, the, the theory behind them is strong. The mechanisms are on paper really useful. They categorically reduce the activation of the uh, adrenal uh, axis, which is great in theory. But again, if there's any disconnect between the level of activation and the strength of the response, often that's where we're going to see people feel worse after these herbs, be it ashwagandha, Siberian, ginseng, guru, mm. etc. Equally, um, when it comes to antioxidants and superfoods, this is another area where we can see a very distinct separation in the responses that others are getting versus those individuals with these challenges might see. So we're talking here about things like milk thistle, curcumin from turmeric, green tea, resveratrol. These are items, again, on paper when we look at what they do and the strong antioxidant responses that we see from the literature it feels like a no-brainer to use them but then we've got to consider the fact that people with these complex metabolic problems almost always react badly not always but almost always to these items so why is that let's look at the mechanism we go deeper and we actually find that these particular items, they are not antioxidants in the pure sense. Normally they contain sub-antioxidant compounds, but in the main, the way 
they work in the human body is by being a pro-oxidant mm-hmm. that poison the cell in a very distinct way, a distinct way that induces a disproportionate response from the cell, a disproportionate antioxidant response, which is why they do reliably induce a positive antioxidant response in most people. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's plenty of individuals for whom, well, instead of having a little bit of a poison and a strong antioxidant response, they just get a little bit of a poison. <laughs> yeah. In instances, the reason why they can't elicit more of an antioxidant response is because they're already at their limit. They've got nothing mm. more to give. And you don't want to poison somebody when they've got nothing more to give because you're going to do something very reliable and it's going to manifest in headaches, uh, nausea, poor sleep, feeling wired. And the thing that sees my palm hit my forehead is when they then go online and the forum buddies say, oh, that's great. That's a detox response. Yeah, that's that (laughs) die off. So uh, you must be doing some good. And there is such a thing as that, that Herxheimer response, but most of the time that's not what we're seeing. You're feeling awful for a reason. <laughs> so those are a couple of examples mm. of things that individuals may well very easily resonate with. Although, yeah, beyond that, I'm also looking at the simple case of feeding somebody without inflaming them it's Mm -hmm. incredible how many individuals i might see who have been through the ringer they've been to so many specialists they've introduced so many protocols but the one thing that was never happening is for them to achieve this most basic first step in their journey which is for us to feed them without inflaming them and so in that sense how does somebody respond to oxalates? How do they respond to lectins? How do they get on with salicylates and phenols? Loads of people are fine with these things, but if you're not getting the responses that you should, mm-hmm. these are things that we should be asking. And it's amazing how many people have been on these long, drawn-out journeys and they've never once asked themselves or been asked how do you get on with these chemicals yeah yeah totally like uh it's uh it's a you know in a way if if you are uh, like already sick and you are suffering from uh, lackluster mitochondrial function and your body isn't optimized then uh, trying to do something good can often lead to a negative effect especially when it comes to these uh these compounds that you mentioned and adaptogens because you know yeah they they don't they're not like uh, uh, vitamins or something. They work in a different mechanism. They work by stimulating the body's own defense mechanisms. And mm-hmm. if, the body, if the body isn't capable of conducting these processes, then they're not going to be beneficial either. So like, they generally would be beneficial for healthy people who are already you know, working properly. But if you're broken, then uh, taking these compounds can also just result in uh, negative effects. Oh, most definitely. And I think that, again, it's a great example of 
when practitioners um, deliver a summary on an item, like resveratrol, for example, that resveratrol is fantastic for mitochondrial function and, and replicating the positive impacts of exercise. Now, of course, the literature is very, very clear. Resveratrol has fantastic capacities to do exactly just that, and it's very reliable in doing that in the population studied. But who are those populations? Have we taken 36 students who are generally healthy-ish, eat a terrible diet? How do they connect up to the 60-year-old woman in front of me who's got a totally different hormonal setup? has suffered with these complex metabolic issues for the last 20 years. We're totally capable of recognizing, well, this mouse study may well not apply to humans, but how different is this mammalian model to the human metabolism? And, and how different are these otherwise healthy students? compared to those with totally different metabolic challenges, totally removed metabolic capacity. So, so yeah, that, um, that, that breathless focus of evidence-based medicine, which I acknowledge has got a, a huge advantage in moving beyond witchcraft and using leeches, etc., <laughs> But we've got to acknowledge the limitations. Its entire aim is to do enough testing to overcome sampling error to the point that we can produce a specific figure, a quantitative value that tells us how effective is resveratrol in inducing the mitochondrial biogenesis. And it assumes that there is a one true figure that applies to everyone. And sometimes it will substratify in regards to how effective is this diabetes drug in type two diabetes. Again, based on a specific figure of one outcome. And we need to acknowledge that there is always going to be a substantial range of responses. And that if we don't give any focus to the mechanisms, and don't relate that to the person who may well not have the ability to undertake that response, then we're going to give them things that will make them worse. And that's what's happening again, yeah. again, and again. And it's so unnecessary. Right. Uh, what about uh, gluten? You mentioned that before, before and as well. Yeah. So that's a perfect example because we, we seem to have a, a, a gathering of two teams, those that are saying, oh, gluten, schmuten, <laughs> it wasn't a problem for our grandparents. And so, do you know what? You kids today with the uh, avocado and gluten-free toast, just eat some real food, will you? And then we've got the other side of things, which are people who've done the research, they've looked into the mechanics, and they're horrified at what gluten is doing. So let's break that apart. Well, when our grandmothers tell us, well, gluten never did us any harm, there's actually a basis in fact there. So 
In the early 1970s, scientists had this very admirable aim of improving food security in developing nations. Now, I don't think anyone's going to argue that that's something that we would like to achieve. And so they worked with wheat and undertook a process of genetic engineering. Not modification, this is genetic engineering. Same thing you would do to racehorses. The only difference being that this product, this Frankenstein product they produced, didn't have to exist by itself uh, or adhere to any of nature's laws in order to then reproduce. And so what we ended up with after 42 different um, breeding stages is this uh, end outcome that we, we now call modern wheat. And it's not capable of withstanding its own weight. It's so heavy. It also has substantial increases in the, the quantity of gluten, has brand new gluten proteins that have never before been seen in society. So yes, society that are eating this modern wheat are the guinea pigs because guess what? Mm -hmm. Never tested on humans. So here we now have this really interesting question of now that the gluten content is higher, now that the gluten proteins are novel, what's that going to do to the humans that consume it? And what's interesting is how that can reliably mess up these proteins, the zonulin proteins that help bind your intestinal cells together and maintain tight junctions, the sort of junctions that we want. Nutrients can come in, but those various endotoxins, food proteins and other undesirables, they stay out. Mm -hmm. So we can see that it can do that. But what's interesting is that there's loads of people who just don't have an issue. Now, of course, there's loads of people that do have an issue. And so this is where we should be keen not to apply dogma to the situation. Of course, it's tempting to, to think, well, this is bad, or at the very least, this is a huge risk for intestinal permeability. But I have plenty of individuals who are just fine on wheat. And mm -hmm. I'm conscious of making sure we at least run a short period of time without it. And yes, sure enough, a lot of people do notice a difference when they bring it back in. I'm conscious of making accurate trials in order to make fair assessments there. It's certainly not one we do whilst they're in a big metabolic storm where they're unlikely to be able to tell minor details of that type. But yeah, it's important and useful to avoid picking a team because often that's what we do. Now I'm going to pick the team that wheat's not a problem. Now I'm going to post memes on, uh, on Facebook saying, <laughs> well, cocaine's gluten-free and that's going to make me feel like I'm intellectually superior. Alternatively, <laughs> we will post uh, studies demonstrating the average response from the literature. We took 86 different individuals, exposed them to high gluten load, and the average response was that there were substantial increases in inflammatory markers in the bloodstream. Except there's plenty of people in that study that weren't affected. So why don't we identify who benefits from avoiding gluten and for whom 
that's an addition, additional burden on them, an additional thing to avoid that just isn't worth the juice for them. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, again, it's another example that uh, what's good for some people may not be good for someone else. And uh, yeah, like a lot of people don't react negatively to gluten. So for them, it's not necessary uh, to avoid it either. So yeah, it's very context dependent. Mm, most definitely. And yeah, and I think that that just plays out across so many different areas. Um, we see people just getting dogmatic about coffee. Um, We see people getting super focused on sunlight exposure. And don't get me wrong, it's huge. Um, But when that's coming um, at the cost of entirely ignoring the one thing that this individual needs to do, yeah, that's where... Uh, we we end up really letting down the individuals mm. because we're serving them up these recommendations that as sensible as they are, as well thought out as they are, as validated by the literature as they are, they often have zero chance to respond to these interventions. Um, and of course the individual is left with this idea that, oh, well, that doesn't work. Or even worse, they're left with, well, I guess I'm just going to be tired, fat, anxious, insert your issue. I'm just going to be like this forever. I guess I'm just broken. And that just isn't the case. Um, Often some very simple yet profound changes mean that now they do have a fair chance of responding and getting the results that they want. Mm, yeah. What, what about um, carbohydrates and uh, blood sugar? How does that uh, affect the uh, stress response and uh, like whether or not people should you mm. know, regulate their carbohydrate intake? Well, yeah, again, perfect example because, yeah, we, <laughs> we often see um, the idea that ketosis is better. Now, generally speaking, a ketogenic diet is likely to produce dramatic benefits if somebody hasn't been in ketosis for several decades. Humans have generally evolved very well over uh, 100,000 years uh, of human evolution. And other than the equator, we would have been guaranteed to undergo sustained periods of lots of carbs being available, sustained periods of very minimal carbs being available. Hmm. So we, we must acknowledge that because that was the situation, humans who adapted best, humans whose mutations allowed them to exploit that evolutionary environments are those that did better in the passing on your genes game in other words we are descended from those successful uh, survivors those that benefited during the carbohydrate excess phase of the year and those that benefited um during the low carb excess so 
we've got to acknowledge that there are advantages to a carbohydrate fueled state and there's roles for the stress response for example insulin generally does tend to have very helpful effects at helping tell the body that we're good the feast uh, is a sign that we're not in danger equally when we even just look at the process of glycolysis very few people recognize that that can have impacts on glutathione um, yes we, we we do want to ensure that nad um, um, nad plus is, is available in the cell and carbohydrate metabolism will drain it but it's also the case that nadh that it forms has helpful roles not only in uh, alternative energy supply but also in supporting glutathione status now I'm not going to get sidetracked with that it's also uh, a case that for almost everybody that actually isn't what they need because they haven't yielded the benefits that a sustained period of fasting or a sustained period uh, of energy delivery that mimics fasting such as a ketogenic diet they've never sustained those benefits and that's why we see such a large amount of people transition from a carbohydrate fuel diet to a ketogenic diet and they achieve wild benefits now some of that is purely simply the, the, the principle of they haven't yielded any of those benefits for so long or ever some of it is to do with the way that a ketogenic diet actually sidesteps very common mitochondrial blockages some bits to do with the way that a ketogenic diet boosts blood flow in the brain and, and through its induction of hif1a in the brain we can see increases in cerebral oxygen delivery of 39% and these are at normal physiological levels of ketones so there's dramatic uh, benefits that it can offer which happen to correspond with common challenges that people are facing but just because it is so dramatically useful and measurably helpful for a large amount of people it doesn't mean that this is the best way for humans to eat. Mm. And what I would rather engineer is a metabolic setup whereby we can exploit the benefits that a carbohydrate fuel diet offers us and one where we can benefit from uh, a ketogenic diet also. And that's mm. our main game. Meanwhile, my primary question when working with individuals is, what is the best choice uh, dietary wise for this individual right now and often that is a ketogenic diet but there's plenty of times when it's not and yeah, yeah we, we do need to recognize that in individuals who have been avidly keto for two years well now they're very very ripe for the benefits of a carbohydrate diet in a way that somebody who survived on uh, yeah. the products of Kellogg's PepsiCo <laughs> isn't likely to benefit. So uh, I hope that makes sense as to, to yeah. why, yes, there are very measurable benefits of both. That ketosis 
typically is the one that we're going to see deliver the uh, more more useful outcomes in modern humans and especially in those with complex metabolic issues and even more especially in those with mitochondrial issues but it isn't a case of best yeah yeah awesome. yeah definitely like uh uh, I, I can see um, application for both diets in various situations. So like in the example of uh, stress management or uh, chronic fatigue, then if a person lacks uh, mitochondrial function or their mitochondria aren't working properly, then they could probably benefit more from a ketogenic diet uh, because of the ketones and just relying more on burning fat for fuel. Uh, whereas someone who, let's say, suffers from thyroid-related issues, then I would actually see more benefit from like a short-term, at least, uh, carbohydrate fix, because like carbs and insulin are like ma- major fuel sources for uh, the thyroid hormones, and they can upregulate metabolism and kind of overcome this maybe like uh, like sluggish metabolism or something related to that. So yeah, both both diets can have great benefits, but uh, only in different different situations. No, exactly. And it, it's so true. And it's so interesting when you look at the interplay between insulin and the deiodinase enzymes that help take this pro-hormone T4, aka thyroxine, which is what's produced by the thyroid gland. Um, and these deiodinase enzymes help move it into the form of T3 which is widely known as the active thyroid hormone. And it's also fair to say that uh, T2 is an active thyroid hormone, specifically at that furnace of the mitochondria, the electrical transport chain. And so, yeah, I I absolutely would uh, agree with what you're saying there. And I do often measure the entire thyroid cascade, what the enzymes are doing. And then with that in mind, we can make a, a, informed decision on do we need more insulin is there going to be a benefit there or indeed if we've got insulin sensitivity issues if there's also issues with the uh, mitochondrial function especially the production of reactive oxygen species within the mitochondria then yeah can we sidestep the area where most of those issues arise which of course the ketogenic diet allows us to do so yeah it's just a case of while the details are complex the concepts i feel are quite simple which is why don't we work out what's best for this individual and then provide it Mm -hmm. now working out can be hard but i have spent 15 years and about 18,000 hours of research uh, and auditing in order to work out how best to do that in an efficient manner. Mm. Yeah, totally. And yeah, at the end of the day, it is just a lot of research and uh, trying to figure out the puzzle and uh, putting the pieces together. Yeah, because I I totally recognize that where I've always struggled to communicate my message is that I can't ever do a talk or come on a podcast and say, right, here's my protocol, four-step plan for improved brain efficiency because the takeaway isn't going to be actionable in that sense. It's going to be 
a concept-driven uh, takeaway, which is that we need to, to work things out. And, and, I th and I totally appreciate exposing somebody to the, the raw complexity of the human metabolism and saying, just work out what's wrong within this multicellular um, interaction of organ systems. Just work out what's wrong and deal with it. Uh, and that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have not only the technology to measure what is limiting your response, but also we've got the experience now to start piecing together obvious steps and measurable metrics to tell us how well is this working? What more is required? And, and from that point on, once we've got something that can be uh, visualized and measured, we can now start creating a map, a map to your finish line, where yeah. you want to be. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not pretending that it's simple. I know that it's not. Um, and it pains me when I don't see the results I want. And that happens. So, but, but yeah, in the main, it, it is so much easier to actually start pulling the levers and seeing the results when we first work out which levers do we want to pull in this individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. And uh, I think that's a good note to start uh, wrapping things up as well. And uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work or if they want to contact you? Okay, so I've got my website, which is probably the obvious place to start. So that's marrickdoyle.com. Marrickdoyle.com um, slash articles may well be uh, a good place for people to start there if anything I've said resonates. Equally, I'm now on Instagram, so Marrick Doyle Nutrition. They can go there and see some occasional square images that I tend to drop from time to time. <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, put all the links in the show notes. And uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? Oh, save the big questions for last. <laughs> yeah. What is the one piece of advice? It's not a case of whether something works or doesn't work, whether it's good or whether it's bad or whether it's effective or whether it's not effective. The question should be, when is this likely to work in me? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, good answer. Like, um, yes, yeah, there are many like uh, facets to a solution and uh, more often than not the timing is also really important <laughs> yeah and i think the, the final thing i would add to that on a more practical level is if you're not sure where to begin get yourself an organic acids test and work on those results uh well yeah, it's been great talking with you and uh, i'll see you around okay simo speak to you soon all right that's it for this episode if you want to support us then leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can also share it with a friend. If you want to learn more about the topics that we discussed in this episode, then check out my new book, Stronger by Stress. 
But on that, thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.